Good afternoon. It is a blessing to be here. It's wonderful to see visitors with us. We want you to know that we're very encouraged by, by your presence here. I hope your Bibles are already open to, to John chapter 6. We're going to be focusing in on the words of Peter here at the end of the passage that we just read. What I want us to consider today is dealing with doubt. And starting off, I want to say that doubt is not a dirty word. Now, certainly the Bible talks about doubt uh, in some places uh, as the opposite of faith, a heart of unbelief, and in that sense, it is certainly something that is destructive and dangerous. But doubt can also be talked about in the sense of uh, a necessary part of faith building. If we never ask questions, if we never search for answers, if we never investigate about the the truth of our faith, then we're not going to develop the type of grounded faith that God desires for us to have. Because the faith that the Bible talks about, Hebrews 11.1, tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence or conviction of things not seen. Faith is not something that is contrary to reason. It's not belief in the illogical. What we see, the Bible tells us that that faith is something that is based on evidence, something that doesn't just involve our will and our heart, but also involves our intellect, uh, being convicted or convinced of something. It's not just a blind acceptance. And so in that sense, questioning, And searching for answers and investigating is going to be part of faith building. That aspect of doubt that we might call it is something that is is necessary in the life of every Christian at one time or another. And we see that Jesus encouraged this type of faith building, encouraged us to look at the evidence. We're, We're going to be focusing on John 6, but if you look over in John 10 for just a moment, John 10 verses 37 and 38 Here, Jesus, in dealing with the Jews, challenges them. He says in verse 37, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Here Jesus says, If I don't give you evidence, don't believe me. That's the type of faith that he was seeking to build in his disciples, a faith that was based on evidence. And so, I think the core issue is not avoiding doubt altogether. It's not avoiding times of questions that we're struggling with uh, and answers that we're searching for. The core issue is how we deal with doubt. When we do have those times of questioning, when we do have those times where things are not making sense to us, how do we handle that? I think that's what we see here in John 6. In John 6, the the larger context of the passage that we just read, Jesus just fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And the people were very amazed at this and came back for more. They continued to follow Jesus even as he went to the other side of the sea. And yet Jesus, knowing their hearts, saw that they were not following him because they had seen the signs and they were convinced and they believed. But because their bellies were filled, they thought, well, if we stick with this guy, we, we can have a, a meal uh, every day of the week. We're not even have to work for our food. 
And so it was not the faith in their hearts, it was the hunger in their bellies that were leading them to follow Jesus. And Jesus rebukes them for this, and he gives them a very difficult teaching at this point. A very difficult teaching to kind of sift out those who were genuinely interested in what he had to say and those who were just interested in the food. If you'll read with me in verse 51, Jesus says, of John chapter 6, verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You know, Jesus could have given them a very easy teaching to swallow, but he gives them something very hard to swallow, pun intended. Verse 52 and 53, it says, Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? This is repulsive. Verse 53 says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood, you have no life in yourself. Jesus doesn't make it less repulsive. He makes it more repulsive. He says, You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. In a literal sense, you know, you can imagine why these people are struggling with this teaching. He's, he's teaching cannibalism here, especially for, for the Jews. Maybe to the pagans, this idea wouldn't have been that far off. But for the Jews, especially, drinking any blood was repulsive. And so that's why down in verse 60, we read what we did earlier. It says, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And in verse 66, it says, As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Now, I think we can look at this passage and we can understand why these people may have been struggling with this teaching. I, I, I don't think really anybody in the audience here fully understood what Jesus was talking about. That wouldn't become evident until Jesus sacrificed himself on our behalf. And we can truly understand that aspect of a taking part in his sacrifice. And so the problem here is not that they didn't understand. The problem here is not that they were struggling with this. It wasn't that they were doubting about what he was saying. The problem is how they dealt with that. What we see here is that Peter handles it in a different way than everyone else, than most of the other disciples here. As many of them are leaving in verse 67, it says, so Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I think we can learn some lessons from Peter here and his reaction to this question, this hard teaching that he was dealing with as everyone else. And I want us to look at Peter's statement here and draw out three points for us. Because I, I think, especially... You know, for our young people, as, as they grow, we, we need to help them realize that, that the, the goal is not to avoid doubt. It's to deal with it properly. So what are three things that we can learn from Peter and how he dealt with his doubts here? First of all, he says, to whom shall we go? I want us to consider that, that when we are dealing with some difficult question, with some doubt, we need to first scrutinize the alternatives. What happens many times, especially if we grew up in the church, we grew up hearing this all our lives, then when some difficult question arises, which it will, we are more inclined to be critical and to scrutinize the belief that we've always had. 
to, to, to scrutinize uh, what, what our parents taught us. And, and sometimes if we have difficulties with different questions like that, our reaction can be to latch on to the first available alternative. Maybe we're struggling with the existence of God. How, how could a loving God allow such and such to happen? Well, I, I can't come up with a good answer, and so I'm just going to latch on to the first available alternative. We'll just say there's not a God. Well, wait a second. Does that provide more answers or more difficulty? Uh, is that truly going to explain the world as we know it better? Or is it simply going to bring up more questions and more struggles trying to make sense of this world? We need to make sure that before we latch on to something else, we scrutinize the alternatives. If not Jesus, then, then who? And so, like Peter, we need to consider the alternatives seriously. I think we see this concept in Matthew 12, if you want to turn your Bibles there. Matthew chapter 12, we see here that the Pharisees had a good bit of difficulty in understanding who Jesus was or, or, or and him claiming to, to be the Christ. Here, the Pharisees had a certain concept of what the Christ, what the Messiah was going to be. You know, the Pharisees, as the religious leaders among the Jews, thought, well, when the Messiah comes... He's going to see how righteous we are. He's going to see that we're the religious leaders here. He's going to come. He's going to pat us on the back. And he's going to say, you know what? You're going to be the leaders in my, in my kingdom. That's not what Jesus did at all. In fact, the Pharisees were the ones that were most rebuked by Jesus. And on top of that, in Matthew chapter 12, we see that Jesus is now healing on the Sabbath day. Something that, that according to, to their overly strict obedience of the law, uh, what was contrary to what they thought God desired. And so they think, surely this cannot be the Christ. And so as Jesus is working miracles, as he's casting out demons, notice their reaction. Here in uh, verse 24, they say, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Okay, so we're having a, a difficulty here. Things don't make sense. Jesus is not what we expect him to be. The Messiah is not what we expect him to be here. Certainly this can't be the Christ. And yet he's casting out demons. How, how are we going to explain this? Well, first available alternative must be the, the power of the ruler of the demons, of Satan, of Beelzebub. But notice Jesus' response to them in verse 25 and 26. He says, did you really think that through? <laughs> It says in verse 25, And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Is this really more reasonable? To think that I'm working these miracles of, of the power of Satan himself, that Satan is casting out Satan? I, I'd be uh, being very counterproductive. Uh, tearing down my own kingdom here. That doesn't make sense. And in verse 27, he continues, he says, If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. Evidently, the, the sons of the Pharisees or, or the disciples of the Pharisees, maybe what's being referred to here, claimed to be able to cast out demons. And they claimed that that was proof that they were from God. And Jesus is saying, do you, do you see the double standard here? <laughs> If, if you're going to say that me casting out demons is proof that I'm working in, in uh, cahoots with Beelzebul, then what does it say about your own 
disciples, your own sons. And so we see the difficulties that this brings up. Before we react to doubts and difficulties by just latching on to some other alternative, we need to give the same scrutiny, the same consideration to whether or not it really answers more questions or it brings up more questions and more difficulties. Look at another example uh, in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 21. In the book of Galatians, we see that there are some Judaizing Christians who are having a hard time grasping this idea that the old law and the old covenant are no longer in effect uh, with the institution of the new covenant. And you can understand why the Jews might have a difficulty with that. Imagine if somebody were to come to us today and to say that everything we were doing is being superseded by something else. They said, you know, you, you've been meeting and worshiping on Sunday. Well, God is now going to say that the day you need to worship is on Thursday. And, and, and you've been partaking of the Lord's Supper. You're not going to do that anymore. You're going to do something else. We would have a very hard time coming to terms with that. The Jews as well, the Jews knew that the old law was from God and now it's being superseded by something else. Uh, you can understand why they're having a difficult time with this, but Paul encourages them to scrutinize the alternative here. In verse 21 of Galatians 2, Paul says, If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. He says, I... You know, I, I understand that you're having some difficulty here with this idea of the old law be passing away, but, but think about it for a second. If, if you are still going to establish your righteousness under the old law, then you can't call yourself a Christian. Then, then there is no purpose, no reason for Jesus having died on the cross. And so before you throw out this idea of the new covenant superseding the old covenant, make sure you understand what the full implications of that are. That makes the cross of no purpose, of no effect. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here we see Paul approaching an issue in, in the same way. 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about the resurrection. And there are some people who evidently were having a hard time grasping this concept of bodily resurrection. Now, we may not know exactly what difficulty they were having with this concept. Maybe they, they were having a hard time thinking, you know, well, what about people that, that died out at sea or people that were burned or people that were dismembered? How are they going to be resurrected and, and, and put back together? Uh, maybe they thought of it, you know, like zombies coming out of the grave. That, that seems odd. So maybe uh, for, for whatever reason, we see they're having some difficulty here in grasping this concept. But notice what Paul says to them in response in verse 13 and following. Paul says in verse 13 and 14, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith also is in vain. You know, I can understand why you might be having some doubts, why you might have, be having some struggles with this question, but think about it for a second. If you're going to, to accept that there is no bodily resurrection, that means that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That means that our entire preaching is pointless, is useless. In verse 15, he says, not, uh, moreover, we even are found to be false witnesses of God. That means everything we told you is now in question. That means we lied when we said we saw him rose, rise from the dead. 
In verse 17, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Verse 18, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Here, in all of these examples, you can understand why somebody might have be having a hard time grasping this concept of the resurrection, of the old law being done away with, of, of Jesus being the Messiah, contrary to what the Pharisees thought he was going to be. But in all of these cases, they're encouraged to scrutinize the alternative. If this is not the case, here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, then, then you have no hope. Then this is pointless then we are of all men to be considered most pitied. And so when we encounter different doubts, different difficulties, and we will, how are we going to handle them? If, if, if I'm struggling with the idea of there being a God, and maybe because of the problem of suffering or the problem of evil, and maybe because of those difficulties, I, I want to simply latch on to the next available Alternative, well, if there's not a God, does that answer more questions or raise more questions? Then how do I explain everything good that I see in the world? How do I explain the, the world in the first place? might end up that we encounter more difficulties, more doubts if we were to scrutinize the other option. If Jesus was not the Son of God, then who was he? Does it make more sense? That he was simply a charlatan and a liar. He can't just be a good moral teacher, can he? No, because he claimed to be the Son of God. Does it make more sense that, that he was a, a lunatic? As C.S. Lewis says, either he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. If the Bible is not the Word of God, then, then how do I explain it? Does it make more sense or less sense when we scrutinize the alternative. And so as we deal with doubts like Peter, like these other instances that we see, we need to make sure that we are giving the same scrutiny to the alternative uh, that we are to our own current belief. But as we get back to John chapter 6, Peter goes on and he says, you have the words of eternal life. Think about it for a moment. Do you think that Peter fully understood the teaching that Jesus had just given? Do you, do you think he understood what Jesus meant when he said that he was going to have to eat his flesh and drink his blood? Certainly not. You know, the, the disciples, Peter and the other disciples, very often had no idea what Jesus was talking about. But he made this statement that you have the words of eternal life because Peter had learned from experience that if he dug deeper and patiently searched for answers, it would be made clear in time. Peter was not really in any better position than anyone else to understand what Jesus was teaching, but Peter trusted that Jesus' words held the treasure of eternal life. It was just going to take some digging to uncover that treasure. In Matthew chapter 13, we see the parable of the sower. And in this parable, we see the first soil that Jesus talks about is the wayside soil. And the, so, the seed falls upon this 
ground beside the road that has been hardened uh, by the, the trotting of men. And Jesus describes in verse 19 what this soil illustrates. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Here, he describes this wayside soil as the soil, the heart that does not understand it. What does he mean when he says that? Does he simply mean the one who does not initially understand? Because if that was the case, then that would describe just about every disciple that Jesus had at that time. In fact, if we look here in Matthew chapter 13, later on in verse 36, we see that his own disciples had to come to him about some of these parables and ask him to explain the parable of the tares of the field. They didn't understand it. Were they the wayside soil? Well, no, what we see, Jesus isn't just talking about initial understanding here. He's talking about one who, because of his initial lack of understanding, refuses to dig deeper, refuses to search diligently for answers, as we see Jesus' own disciples doing here. Many times when I approach the scriptures, I may not understand something right away. At that point, I have a decision. Am I going to be the wayside soil, or am I going to dig deeper? Peter had the faith, had the trust to dig deeper, even though he didn't understand the trust that there was These were the words of eternal life, and in time, through searching diligently, he would find it. I think one true example that we see of the wayside soil is John chapter 7. John chapter 7, just shortly after this experience uh, with with Peter, we read at the end of John 7, verses 40 through 52, an example of the Pharisees, uh, the, the scribes and and teachers here, and how they reacted to Jesus. In verse 41, as they're discussing who Jesus is, some of the people, it says, others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Verse 42, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Okay, so here we have these people discussing who is Jesus. And some say that he's the Christ, but others say, well, no, 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 he came from Galilee. And we know the Christ is going to be a descendant of David, and he's going to come from Bethlehem. What's the problem here? Was Jesus a descendant of David? Yes. Did Jesus, was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Yes. And yet, all they knew about him was that he was from Galilee. And and certainly, the Christ wasn't going to come from Galilee. The problem here was not their initial misunderstanding, but they didn't dig deeper to discover the truth in this matter. And so, we see the Pharisees and the scribes refusing to dig deeper. In fact, Nicodemus, we read in verse 50 and 51, wanted to dig deeper. Um, Nicodemus says in verse 51, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Verse 52, they answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Here, 
Nicodemus wants to investigate what Jesus is saying. Well, let, let's let's see what he has to say. Let, let's give this a fair uh, trial here. And yet, the other scribes here tell him, search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. What's really ironic is they were the ones who needed to search and see because they were wrong on two accounts. Number one, they were wrong that Jesus was born in Galilee. He wasn't. He was born in Bethlehem. Number two, they were wrong that the scriptures don't talk about a prophet arising out of Galilee. We see Matthew chapter 4. Matthew makes it very clear uh, that Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 9 about Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness will see a great light, was a reference to Jesus arising out of Galilee. And so here we see the wayside soil, those who refuse to dig deeper. You know, we may many times, like those in John 6, encounter something that does not make sense to us. A question that is difficult for us to to struggle with. And yet, if we are willing to put in the diligent effort to dig deeper, we can see that Jesus, yes, in fact, does give us the words of eternal life. If we want the truth, we can't be lazy. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If we want to receive our reward, if we want a a grounded faith in the Lord, we need to be willing to diligently seek him. Because, brethren, faith is not cheap. Truth is not cheap. A strong relationship with God is not cheap. We can't expect to put in 50 cents of effort and get out a a strong, uh, grounded faith in the Lord. If we want to have a strong relationship with God, a strong faith, we are going to have to put in diligent Effort. We're going to be have, have to be like the Bereans in Acts 17, verse 11, who, who searched daily to see whether these things were so. In 2 Peter chapter 3, and verse 16, Peter ta- talks about Paul's writing. And he says, in some of Paul's writings, there are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable men distort, as they do also the rest of the scripture to their own destruction. There are hard things to understand within the scripture and yet we have a choice Uh, it doesn't say it's hard to understand it doesn't say it's impossible to understand it says it's hard to understand are we going to put in the effort the diligent effort to search and to find the truth in that matter or are we going to simply distort it and twist it to our own destruction And so, as we deal with doubts and with questions, we need to be willing to search diligently for answers, not to be the wayside soil. But thirdly, the last thing Peter says here, he says, We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Here, You know, there are going to be times that we don't understand a lot of things, but we can go back to that which we do understand. We can stand fast in that which we know. Peter didn't understand much of anything that Jesus had just said. And yet, there was one thing that he did understand. He understood that just a day or two prior, he had seen him feed 
5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He understood that he had seen Jesus cast out demons, that he had seen Jesus heal the lame and the sick and the blind. And so there was a lot that Peter didn't know. But he wasn't going to base his life in that. He was going to base his life on what he did know. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You know, we're going to struggle with doubts and with questions. Some doubts and questions we may struggle with for the rest of of our lives. Because God hasn't answered every question. God has only answered those questions that we need the answers to. Deuteronomy 29, 29, even in the Old Testament, God said the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us. There are some things that, that are, are God's in the end of the stick here. And he is not accountable to us to answer every question that we might have. But as we deal with those questions, what are we going to do? Are we going to, to sink in the, the sands of skepticism? Or are we going to base our life on, lives on what we do know? In Job chapter 38, Job is one who dealt with many doubts and questions. As he, despite his faithfulness to the Lord, is suffering severely here. You can understand why he's struggling with doubts. Where is God? Why is God allowing this? If I'm being faithful to the Lord, why isn't he answering me? Why is he neglecting me like this? But as Job begins to allow these doubts to, to fester within his heart, and as they, he, he begins to, to question God, notice what God's response in the end is. You know, God, when he comes in in chapter 38, doesn't say, Job, by the way, you, you didn't know this, but Satan and I had this conversation in chapter 1. And, uh, you know, we, we uh, I was talking about how faithful you were, and we decided that we'd let him test you. God doesn't explain any of that. The answer to the book of Job is not found in chapter 1. The answer to the book of Job is found at the end. And when God comes to Job, what does he say? He doesn't explain anything. Verse 2 of chapter 38, he says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up the loins, your loins like a man, and I will ask you and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know or stretched the line on it? God basically says to Job, you don't understand what you're talking about, Job. You need to simply trust me that I'm in control. As God asks question after question after question, Job's only response is, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And that's the point. Job didn't have to know. God was in control. And that's the point that Job gets at the end of the book. If you look in chapter 42, what is Job's final response? Job 42, starting verse 2, it sa he says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Job says, I've been talking about a lot of things that I didn't know anything about, that I didn't understand, but there's one thing I do know. That's that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You are in control. And that's enough. 
the answer to Job here is that he needs to stop venturing into areas that he doesn't understand and he doesn't have answers to and he doesn't need answers to. He needs to go back to the answers that he does have, to what he does know, he can know, that God is in control. Another example of this is Hebrews chapter 11. We won't spend much time here. But remember the example of Abraham and sacrificing his son Isaac here in Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. We see Abraham struggling with this and yet being triumphant in faith. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendant shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a tithe. Do you think that was difficult for Abraham? (laughs) That would be an understatement. Do you think he had some questions about, God, why? Why would you have me sacrifice my son? How are you going to fulfill your promise? You promised that through Isaac, my descendants were going to be blessed. And Abraham didn't know. The Hebrew writer reveals to us that perhaps Abraham thought that God was going to raise him back from the dead. But Abraham didn't have the answer, but he didn't need the answer. Because he had the promise. He says, I don't know what God's going to do, but I do know one thing. God made made a promise. And God's going to keep that promise. God made a promise that through Isaac, my descendants are going to be blessed. And whether he's going to raise him back up or not, I know that he's going to fulfill that promise. That is faith. Going back to what we do know, what we can know, and founding our lives upon that. In Philippians chapter 3, as Paul is talking about reaching forward in his faith, as he's talking about maturing, reaching uh, to higher ground, if you will, he urges us to continue to move forward, to press on toward the goal, each day, but notice what he says down in verse 16. As he's concluding this thought, he says, however, Philippians chapter 3, verse 16, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. You know, I'm always reaching forward. There's always more growth, more things that I can come to understand, more areas that I can grow in reflecting the character of God. But in the meantime, I am going to live by the standard to which I have attained. There may be some things that I don't understand right now. Maybe there's some things that I'm doing right now that that I'll find out later on in my walk with the Lord are incorrect. But what God wants me to do is to base my life on the things that I do know. And what I know at this point God wants me to do, that's what I'm going to do. We need to found our lives on answers, on the things that we do know. Because if we can't base our life on questions, if I'm going to to base my life and the way I live my life on questions and and answers that I don't have, I'm going to quickly sink into skepticism. But I need to be willing to found my life on that which I do know, as Peter did. He knew that despite how crazy this teaching sounded, that Jesus was the Holy One of God. I want to look at one last passage together. If you turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. This is what Paul instructs Timothy here. I think uh, probably in every generation, in the younger generation, there's always a tendency to think that, you know, what I've been taught, what I've grown up with, uh, you know, it, it can't be right. You know, I, as I'm searching for myself and searching for answers, you know, what, what, what's the chance that what I was taught growing up is actually right? I, I need to look for, for something else. Well, notice what Paul tells Timothy. He says, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. He says, if, if you have good reason, if, if you've been convinced of something, and the people that have taught you this are, are people that you respect and that you honor. Don't be quick to throw that aside. It says you be very careful to throw that aside. Don't throw that aside just because you have questions that you want answered. You better have some pretty good answers that would indicate you need to leave that behind. And so we need to make sure that in our faith, as we struggle with questions, as we struggle with, with difficulties, whether it be in regard to the existence of God or the deity of Jesus or the inspiration of the Bible or some particular teaching that I've been taught growing up, I need to make sure that as I encounter those doubts and those difficulties, I scrutinize the alternative. I put in the effort to search diligently for answers. And I stand fast in what I do know not being quick to cast that aside. What about you this morning? Let's set down our mirrors. As we have looked into God's word, what have we seen within our own heart? Maybe you have some questions. Maybe you have some doubts that you're struggling with. Are you willing to put in the effort to search diligently? If there's any questions that we can help you in finding the answers to, that would that's what we want to do. That's what we're here for. If you have questions, doubts that you're dealing with, feel free to come and talk with me or I'm sure any other member here. Because I'm convinced that there is a God, that this is His Word, and that His Son died so that my soul could be saved. If you're convinced of that, this afternoon, and you recognize you're not living in accordance with that, that you have not committed your life to Him, won't you make the necessary changes? Won't you devote your life to the Lord who loved you so much that He sent His Son to die for you? If we can help you in any way, whether in studying together or helping you in committing your life to the Lord in baptism today, that's what we want to do. If we can help you in any way, please let us know before the service is over.